there is no error with your audio outputs. Do not attempt to fix any sound issues. We are monitoring you with this device. We control your options and settings. We are transmitting through your internet connection, but our signal is actually entering your mind, sending electrical impulses into the very tissues of your brain. Try to stay calm. We've taken over your senses for the duration of this broadcast. You are helpless to resist. We have taken control for your own sake. There are things you must know. This is Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Greetings, our listeners, whoever they are. I am Olaf Phillips. I'm the the, uh, publisher and owner of Paranoia Publishing. Uh, My fair weather editor-in-chief, Ron Patton, uh, is not going to be on tonight. He has a massive headache and is being electronically targeted. So it's just me. Um, Tonight we have a very special guest, a guy who's generating quite a bit of buzz uh, in the conspiracy and UFO world. Uh, Underground buzz, got to change that. And his name is Walter Bosley. Now, you may know Walter. uh, You may not. I'm really crappy at uh, bios. (laughs) But what I will tell you is Walter is a former Air Force officer uh, who was in the OSI, Office of Special Investigations. He was also... uh, uh, worked for the FBI for for quite some time, and he has done a good many things. But what I know him from is his work with the Empire of the Wheel and some interesting things called arrows. Now, I first was introduced to Walter at the Secret Space Conference, and I happen to think that he gave the second best uh, presentation at the conference. I, of course, gave the best because I'm me. That's true. <laughs> no, <laughs> you you gave the best one, um, but oh. I, I'm really lousy at bios, so I'm going to let Walter uh, do his own. Now, there is some business that I have to attend to before I let Walter talk anymore. Um, there, we had a, I put a posting up on Facebook because, you know, Paranoia is on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else in the world. And I put up a posting as me. So if you want to find me, I'm Olaf Phillips on Facebook. I'm there. I'll, I'll accept your friend request. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a megalomaniac. I'm, I like to talk to people. But, you know, I, I was actually uh, half-heartedly bitching, saying, you know, I wish that there was some cheap land up in Oregon somewhere where I could build, like, the Paranoia Conspiracy Bunker. And a bunch of people jumped on that and were like, you know what? You really should do that. You really should go out and buy some cheap land and build a conspiracy bunker, a conspiracy nerve center bunker in the middle of Oregon somewhere. And they they were saying that maybe I should uh, do a Kickstarter to try to raise money to build a conspiracy bunker. So... You know, I'm I'm actually I don't know what to think about that. I I think it'd be a lot of fun and be really interesting and whatever. But our loyal listeners, of which there are a couple, I would like you guys to go on there, find that posting. It's under me, 
Olaf Phillips, and uh, you know, post on there, and and, and I'm I'm really curious if people actually think it's worthwhile. You know, it, it, I mean, to do something like that, it's not an exorbitant amount of money, but you know, it costs money, and it would take a Kickstarter. So I'm I'm curious if there's actually enough support to do something wiggy like that. I I know a place where I could build it that would actually be pretty cool for a couple reasons, but. You know, if if you think that's actually a reasonable idea, uh, find me on Facebook. I'm Olaf Phillips on Facebook, or you can post it on Paranoia, uh, Paranoia Magazine on Facebook, or Paranoia Mag on Twitter, Paranoia Mag on uh, Instagram. Also, again, I'm going to plead with you guys, hey, go on iTunes, go on Stitcher, go on wherever the hell you find this, SoundCloud, and, you know, give us some thumbs up and give us some positive feedback and positive ratings. You know, it helps us. Um, We love you you guys to show some love back and and let people know we're out there you know try to spread the word we're an underground operation so you know we don't have a huge budget uh, i spent my budget today buying oreos and so you know i don't i can't do any advertising because i ate my budget in oreos so anyway you know just get out there and let people know we exist uh buy some t-shirts they're they're cool i design them because i don't know what i'm doing anyway so welcome to amateur hour uh walter Yes. Welcome to to our our Amateur Hour podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, It's always good to to be able to talk to folks or, you know, get get out there and have these kinds of conversations. I enjoy this. It's, you know, I think it's important. I think that it's these things like podcasts are the the kind of – how we do this now you know i think a lot it used to be you know you had you paid 20 bucks and you went to the 10 bucks or 20 bucks and you went to the giant rock you know giant rock airport and you'd hear some people talking and have some coffee but you know nowadays you know conferences are three or four hundred bucks for a ticket yeah yeah not to mention not to mention the transpo getting there the hotel and then yourself oh my goodness it's it's expensive so i think that the way a lot of people find out about new things now is through podcasts and you know our podcast in particular you know we we're very nuts and bolts and we try to take it back to the beginning and and invite on people that are interesting and and can enlighten us and educate us so some for some reason you chose to come on i don't know I, I believe me, I, uh, <laughs> I I enjoy the coverage, as they call it. I, I, I seriously do. I like I like um, talking with new audiences or audiences I haven't, you know, um, spoke to in in you know a while. Um, so you know, anytime I'm I'm always game to do these things. You know, me too. I mean, when people ask me to come on. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm usually I check it out if it seems reasonable, like reasonable people, I'll, I'll go on, mm-hmm. you know, and have a conversation because I enjoy the conversation. It's all right. yeah. It's nice to talk to people who pass, kind of, sort of know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know what what I like about what I like about the shows where we get on and talk are I really do not like the shows where I'm cornered into. You know, debating. I'm using the air quotes there for those who can't see the he video. Did. He did. He really um, put his fingers up. It was pretty funny. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, what what has become so-called debate today is really just a tactic to stymie the conversation. Um, 
for, you know, whatever reason, according to the agenda of the so-called, you know, um, dissenting voice. And, you know, sometimes you go on shows and they'll spring somebody on you. I really don't like that. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, they spring someone on you and you end up spending, you know, half of your airtime, you know, bickering with somebody who just I don't know what's worse. Um, bickering with the guy who truly doubts what I'm saying or bickering with the guy who feels like, well, somebody's got to be a dissenting voice. So I'm going to the devil's advocacy thing for the sake of it. I cannot stand that. You know, I being the devil's advocate just for the sake of it. Anyway, the bottom line is I don't like doing I, I tell people I don't debate anything. Um, I, you know, I like to talk to people who, who um you know, are interested in reading what I do or interested in what my thoughts are, what I found. And if they're not interested or they have trouble with it, just leave the conversation. You know, let's just not have one because, um, you know, and, and it's not that I expect everybody to agree with me um, or I want to be in an echo chamber. But um, believe me, I thought of all the contrary points that someone can come up with. I know they're there, but I'm speculating and I, you know, I like to do that. And I, you know, stand by my stuff. So what I like about like, you know, this is you and I are like minded and we're going to have a dialogue, a conversation about the topic and the ideas associated with it without having to be in any kind of intellectually defensive posture. Well, I have an agenda, uh, Walter. Oh, excellent. And that is <laughs> you will find out. <laughs> okay, so let's let's cut the shit. So you're you're a really good writer, and thank you. You're welcome. You, you know, and I I've read almost all your books, and I love them. And if you're unfamiliar with Walter Walter shit, go go find him. It's easy. He'll he'll tell you where to find him at the end. But it's really good. I mean, the Disneyland one was awesome. I love the Empire of the Wheel. I'm halfway through the the one about your dad, the mm -hmm. shimmering the shimmering light and then i'm about to start the breakaway one um <clears throat> now the the one about your dad is is very interesting and it's I'll, I'll let you give the synopsis of what it's about but i find it very fascinating and it's it's interesting how how you figure things out the because it's the first book that i've seen that you wrote where you actually i can really get a sense of your your method mm. Because you're a lot of times when you're writing, it's like, okay, this happened. This it's very investigative. This happened. This happened. This happened. This is how I figured out this. 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 And like bazillions of footnotes. Bazillion, you know, thanks. <laughs> thanks to uh, our our favorite author, uh, Mr. Farrell. Thousands. Yes, thousands. <laughs> yes, thousands of footnotes. But this one's different. This is you can tell it's it's close to the heart. Mm -hmm. And it's more. It seems to be more of a dialogue about discovering these things about saying you know what i'm gonna actually take what he said and figure this thing out and then it's a it's kind of like a travel log of you figuring it out and I, i'm fascinated I, I by so. that yeah that's that's kind of i mean you 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 get what i was trying to do yeah. um it oh just to clarify still an officer but a former agent 
commissions are for life. Oh yes, I actually had an I had an interesting <laughs> conversation about this with somebody who who understands such things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about the uh, the Michael Flynn situation. Oh boy! And and uh, not to digress too much, uh, but right, it was pointed out to me that he can very easily be recalled to active duty and tried tried in a military court, <laughs> yeah. which would be very unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, if if yeah, like you said, not life. to go too far into that, but if he if he stepped, uh, we'll 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 do the good version. If he stepped on his tie, <laughs> that's yes. not the usual word. Right. Um, with that, it's, it might be a he should have known better kind of thing, particularly a general officer. Oh yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah. so the book that we're talking about is is the Shimmering Light, I believe it's called. Yes. And and basically, it's it's born out of a story that your dad had told you for years. Yes. And that you finally decided, you know what, I'm going to figure out what the deal is. Yes, I I had heard about these so what we call the Roswell incident from my dad um, before the term Roswell incident. I think anyone ever heard of, um, and I refer specifically to the first book by uh, Bill Moore and Charles Berlitz. And, you know, that came out in 1980. When that book came out, you know, immediately I recognized, wait a minute, this is the story. This is connected to that thing my dad told me, but this is an interesting conclusion, you know, that they've got here because it's not not what my dad said. And when I showed him the book, he just kind of shook his head and laughed and said, wow, they're that is not what they are, meaning they were not extraterrestrials. And he insisted on that for decades, um, that it was not extraterrestrials, but what he claimed was equally as, you know, the, the word fantastic is what I can come up with. Um, you know, he said it was a hidden civilization of human beings that lived here on this planet with us specifically in a subterranean realm. That's what he said he was briefed at Wright-Patterson. Um, you know, as to what happened at Roswell, as to who crashed at Roswell and what was retrieved. And he had talked about being shown bodies and, you know, his specialty, you know, required... Let me rephrase that. In his specialty, he had the coveted need to know because he was in a physiological training unit in aerospace medicine. Now, what that means is he ran pilots and other flight crew through altitude chamber training, for one, trained them on how to use their pressure suits and their life support systems, you know, like the oxygen system and such. And... So he had to be trained and educated in professional education through the Air Force in aviation medicine, the effects of high altitude on the human body. And and it was in U.S. Air Force aviation medicine that the American space program um, that we know today via NASA really got its start. The Mercury program very specifically was a United States Air Force project before it was NASA. And while it was U.S. Air Force, that's when my dad's unit at George Air Force Base in uh, Victorville tested, did the ground testing, I should say, for the Mercury spacesuits, the ones you see in the movie The Right Stuff. Um, 
So he had the clearance for things that were space related or what they might have thought were space related, anything to do with flight and human physiology. And on top of that, as I um, very interestingly discovered in his documents in recent years, just um, since he died, was a little form, and I put this in the book. Um, if you have uh, the book, it's in the back. I have a copy of his DD-214, but I also have this George Air Force Base Form 101. And on that, it did, this dates back to 1957. On that is uh, listed, um, are listed his various duties on the base. And one of them is um, a casualty collection team, which means crash retrieval. So because he was also um, part of a crash retrieval team, he was trained and experienced in, you know, crashes, any kind of air crash. Um, I, I remember him telling me the stories of the various, you know, U.S. Air Force jet crashes that there were and the sad stories of these guys he was acquainted with, Ivan Kinchlow among them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, the tragic crashes that, that took some of those pilots. So, you know, he was around this stuff, but being on a, what they called casualty collection team number one, um, you know, once again, there he had a need to know. And the reason we, I, I talk about this is, and point this out is because people would say, well, who was your dad? You know, a staff sergeant in the Air Force. What the hell? Why would he have to be briefed in 1958 on what happened at Roswell? Well, what I've just told you is exactly why. He, he was under aviation uh, medicine command. And he was specifically in a physiological training unit. He was a physiological training specialist, and he was on a casualty collection team. Anything to do with man in space, anything to do with, you know, the effects of high altitude or aviation on the human body, that was the bailiwick my dad worked in. So, yeah, he had the coveted need to know, as well as a pretty impressive clearance. What's, what's interesting about it, though, is that <clears throat> in reading it, you know, you're 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 addressing the inner earth, and mm -hmm. and that's something that has been contested since the 1800s. That whether there is an inner earth or not, there's right. plenty of stories about Lemurians descending from the descending from the top of Mount Shasta into Shasta City and buying mm -hmm. things with diamonds. And you know, you can go out there during the summer at random times. You'll see these lines of lights going up the side of the mountain, and you know, mm -hmm. even even Mount Adams, that there's some sort of a UFO hangar inside of it, which I've seen. You know, it, but it's interesting because, especially during the 50s, that there was a lot of research into the inner Earth, but a lot of it is. I mean, Raymond Bernard, I think, did probably some of the best stuff, but you've got the Smoky God, you know, you've got the Shriver mystery, and, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of it... The coming race. Right, the coming race. Bullard-Litton. Bullard-Litton. And, you know, there's this notion that there's somebody living under the ground, and, and a lot. I think a lot of people... Uh, how should I put it? I think a lot of people 
kind of poo-poo that because it's like, well, if they were living under the earth, we would know they're there. And if they had these vast cities and these vast chambers. And the, the interesting thing that I got out of your book so far is that it's not it's not so much that like the hollow earth. It's more like right. chambers, that there are these massive right. chambers, which we do know exist. And inside yeah. these chambers, they have cities. They, they have ecosystems they have ecosystems. of some sort, and of course their technology enhances it. And and I, I I'm glad you made that distinction because I try to make the distinction. I think I think what has thrown some people off is that classic you know hollow earth like the earth is a complete hollow ball um, uh, theory. Right. Um, you know yes of course there are some issues with that. That's why I believe in you know. Take a bunch of stories and look at the common denominator. And, and there you'll find somewhere in there, if you dig deep enough, you'll find the actual nugget or seed of truth mm. from which all these things, you know, sprouted from. In other words, you know, this this wild story of a hollow earth with an inner sun and continents right. and seas and Rex Mundi, which <coughs> we might get to again later. Um uh, you know, what this could be is just that mythologized version of what's really there and who's really there. Just like um, with the uh, the Danan, who I speak of in the book, and you're halfway through right. the book, right. you've read my Disneyland book. Um, it, it, it's, it's very interesting. I was just thinking about this today. And I'll get back to it. But uh, my, my point is that the Tuwe de Danan are among the fairy folk who, you know, were told, you, you know, they live inside the hills and then under the ground. And, and um, uh, you know, it ends up being stories of leprechauns and stuff like that. But when you and fairies, exactly. And what happens is when they started out, they were not these sprightly little <coughs> things oh, of the no. size of. They were full human size. They were a race of beings. And over time, because they went away, um, because the incoming culture has to belittle the one before it, um, you know, they they just keep getting mythologized into Tinkerbell. And they were by no means Tinkerbell when you go to the original source. But um, here's what's interesting. People who've read my books – I didn't realize it so much um, until it dawned on me, until I realized it. I didn't realize it until I realized it. Um, the Tuwe de Dinan have continued to show up. They keep being present in all my research, whether I've researched Disneyland, whether I've researched the Empire of the Wheel. And now, you know, my dad's story, um, and even with origin, um, they're there. They're there. Uh, even even in the Cabrillo book, uh, the secret mission stuff, and I, <laughs> it's intriguing to me. It's very intriguing to me because they keep showing up, and. Um, it's but you haven't finished the book. When you get to the book, you'll understand my reasons to go too far um, in speaking much about them. But I just wanted to point that out that when you read the books, 
it, somewhere along the way, we come to the two-way did an end. And, you know, valet. I was just going to say that. Valet came to them 30 years ago. Yeah. And and it's essential into what he thinks is going on. Yeah. Um, and there's people that just so dearly want it to be the traditional extraterrestrial thing that they, you know, for the longest time, they just didn't want to hear it. And, and I think now you got people willing to listen. Well, and with Veli, I mean, it, it marked a massive change in his research. I mean, yeah, I think it was the messengers of deception where he really got into that. And he, it was like, you know, suddenly it's like, well, no, they're not aliens. These people have always been here. You know, yeah. then he started to go toward the ultra terrestrial hypothesis or because they did they did come from somewhere else yes but ex exactly they are not they are not extraterrestrials in that sense yeah it's it's very interesting the ultra terrestrial path that Vili took and he's been on that path ever since i mean he never went back i mean it's always they, he's when you it. when you if you cross paths with them it does that it well, changes your outlook. And, you know, the, the other thing that's interesting, when you were just talking, you know, obviously there's always the, the stories of the the little people. There, There's a, a very, very interesting story about a – there's a um, – like a reservoir outside of Klamath Falls. And it's, mm -hmm. it's like – and according to Childress, there's a lost city up there that belongs to these people. But they're – the – the uh, reservoir is rectangular, perfectly rectangular. Belongs to what people? The reservoir. Oh, David said that, that there. Well, I I don't know that that he said that, but there's a belief among the the Native Americans up there, the Yurok and the Klamath, that this reservoir that's perfectly rectangular was built by the little people, and they oh, decided okay. they decided they needed a reservoir, and so one in a single night they built this reservoir. But Childress claims that outside of Klamath Falls, up in the hills, that there's a lost city mm -hmm. that also belonged to them. And also, I know a guy um, who there's a, a group of little people called the Metauni who live in, in uh, Hawaii. And he mm -hmm. and he used to go camping on the Big Island because he's from Hawaii, and the mm -hmm. Big Island is very feral. That if if you've never, I've never been there, but it's well known to be unlike Oahu and Maui and Kauai, where he, well Kauai is kind of feral, but the Big Island is totally feral. Well, he went camping on the Big Island, and he said during the night you could hear them. But what's interesting about that, you could hear them moving around and talking. But what's interesting about that is as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, the other, like the Menauni and like the, the, this group from the Klamath, that, you know, these, these kind of little people or fairy folk or whatever, you know, they, they exist everywhere. And it, it struck me that I knew a guy, well, I know a guy from Japan. Mm -hmm. he's, he's Japanese. He's a Shinto Buddhist. And he, he was always very worried that the fox spirit would get behind him and give him bad luck. Mm -hmm. And so everything he did, you know, he had this concept of he wanted to keep the fox spirit away from his back. Because if he got the fox spirit on his back, he, I mean, this guy has a Ph.D. in atmospheric science. I mean, he's not yeah. he's a very well-educated individual. but he, He's no fool. He's no fool, but he believes tangibly that this fox spirit exists. And in Japan, there's this idea that the foxes at night become these these fairy folk. 
and it was actually demonstrated by Kurosawa in Dreams with the fox wedding that a small child goes into the forest and sees a fox wedding and when he sees the fox wedding he goes home and his parents had warned him stay close to the house the foxes come out at night and you if you see them they'll you know there's a price you pay and so he saw them and they they came to the house and they said your son saw us so now he has two choices we will either kill him or he has to join us and they took him away and he lived with the foxes that see that is classic right that's a classic situation and when you were talking about it i'm like dude this is the fox wedding from dreams you know kurosawa just put it on film Mm -hmm. but ever they're everywhere i mean even in the philippines exactly the hidden ones the hidden ones are definitely everywhere you know, my my father-in-law would tell you stories about out in the provinces that the that something equivalent would would show up, and you'd see them, you know, in the trees, and and they would be doing things, and they would mm. mess with you and hide stuff, and they did they stole things, and you know, I mean, he he believes it, and he said, you know, we saw them. It's not like we didn't see them. You know, if you were there, you'd see them rush past you. You never really saw them. You just see this like blur. Mm-hmm. They were very fast, but that goes mm-hmm. to the dimensional model of the ultra-terrestrials, right? Right. Which, um, you know, all I can say is I've <clears throat> I've seen more evidence for you know who I've found than I have for extraterrestrials. Much more evidence. You know. For that. For me, for me personally, you know, I've I've written books about the secret space program. You know, I don't I don't think that aliens crash at Roswell or Aztec or anywhere else. But I've also seen things that I can't explain that no that defy human logic. Mm-hmm. Both, you know, both it, <clears throat> I've never seen a I've never seen a fairy, you know, or fairy folk or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I've seen things in the sky that don't make any sense. And so, you know, you you think to yourself, well, that could be aliens, sure. But I I kind of subscribe to Veli and Hynek's model of well, you know, they exist, and there may be ten or fifteen percent of the total number of UFO sightings we have might be right. extraterrestrial. So I, I do believe that extraterrestrials exist. I just oh think sure. That- I yeah, the numbers are very low. And I think they've come here. Oh, yeah. And sure. I think they continue to come here. Um, I think one of the dirty little secrets of of the extraterrestrial you know, information is that um, there are human beings exactly like us from other worlds. Now, I want to clarify, you know, people say, well, that's impossible. They're exactly like us. They would have had to start on this planet. You know what? I come back at those people and I say, when you or our scientific team from this planet has visited every single planet in the universe and finds not a single human being like us, then that can be said. Because right now, there's nothing more ignorant when we have only been to the moon, as far as we know, than maybe secretly just to Mars. You know, you, you get my point. We've only been to a few worlds, and we're going to have some jackass declare that, oh, it's impossible for human beings to be anywhere else to have developed and come from there. That's nonsense. That's idiotic. Well, you know, the one, the one thing that in talking to you— <clears throat> 
<clears throat> about the shimmering light, one of the things that I I really liked is that I think a lot of times the detail is lost in some of these things. You know, you have people that go out and make these extraordinary statements, mm-hmm. but the detail is lost. And, and it's always, it's the detail that gets you. And one, yep. of the, one of the things that you were telling me about is that, is this scene that your father described where he basically bumped into a bunch of these guys. And the way that you described what they looked like, and I'll let you describe them in a minute, but the way that you describe what they look like is physiological. Oh, somebody's going by in a motorcycle. Okay, sorry, th- this is amateur hour. You know, we- this is a half-assed podcast. We don't have, like, a... <clears throat> I'm not in a bunker yet, and we don't have you know, like that, soundproof that, rooms. Well, love, that just means that it can be said of you that you're not a complete ass. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's right. I'm not a complete ass. But the physiological description that you described to me is consistent with somebody who lives subterraneally. And, and I can say that because, you know... I've mentioned it a few times, but I I went to a real college in the University of California system, and I spent five years studying uh, human evolution and both physical evolution and societal evolution. And I studied anthropology, both physical and cultural. I did linguistics, though I was really lousy at it. Uh, But, you know, I went to an honest-to-God UC school. I was admitted. I attended it. And I got a UC education in anthropology. And one of the things that was huge to us in physical anthropology was the morphology, the, the, this idea of the, you know the adaptability of the human, the human body, or or mammals in general, or even right. you know non mammals and invertebrates and everything else that we adapt mm-hmm. to our environment. And when you described to me who he bumped into, I thought to myself, you know, this is the first time in any inner Earth discussion that I've ever seen, had, heard, read, or been a party to, where the the physiological description is consistent with what I would expect. Now, why don't you describe what, what your dad bumped into in that tunnel? He ran into human beings who were either completely or very nearly blind. Um, they were very if I recall. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they were nearly blind. And the, the description, here's what's interesting is, a couple of hundred years or so ago, there was, oh gosh, who was it? I think I cited in the book. <coughs> I think a well-known guy, historical um, pioneer frontiersman or something. Anyway, um, there was the story of the moon-eyed people that the frontiersmen who encountered the Cherokee learned about. The moon-eyed people, they lived underground, they uh, were blind, hence the moon-eyed people. And I remember that my dad had been telling me the story of these people that he encountered underneath Arizona. And when I had stumbled upon years later this tale of the moon-eyed folks, you know, that was one of the interesting corroborating, you know, pieces of historical data. Now, someone could argue that my dad had read the story of the moon-eyed people and, you know, that was part of, 
you know, him making something up to pull my leg. And, and as you know, you're halfway through the book, but I think by halfway you see that I, I'm very honest. I go in, I go into the, the, I debate myself essentially in this. I I say, Hey, you struggle with it. Yeah. Um, in the end, I think you'll know where I stand. But oh, you, my. <laughs> you struggle with it. I mean, you, you know, you're very plain about it, that you struggle with it, that is as interesting as it is. It's at points it's you get the sense that it's almost too fantastical for you to swallow it, that it's like I'm I'm finding corroborating evidence. I'm finding circumstantial evidence. But some of this is, you know, this is crazy. Not so much too fantastical for me well yeah to swallow but too fantastical for me to be able to convince the reader that's important um, and, and the agent the investigator see there's me the person then there's the guy who's the natural investigator and the former federal agent and that guy, the former federal agent, you know, the professional in, in a licensed PI, that guy understands the necessity of evidence, you know, some type of material evidence. And looking at the available evidence and kind of doing the Occam's razor thing, um, which is another conversation, but you should ask Joseph Farrell how Occam's razor gets grossly misapplied these days. But, uh, you know, I just bring it up so people get the idea of what well, I'm saying. I, I live and die by Occam's razor. I, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's the I don't have as big a problem with people using it because I get the gist of it, yeah. you know, of why. But that, I mean, I just used it myself. But, you know, <laughs> the, the, the professional former agent, the professional investigator, you know, I have to look at the available evidence and I have to acknowledge it could be B or C because of this particular piece of evidence. And then, you know, people have a hard time sometimes with I leave it up to the reader. Well, guess what? Um, that has everything to do with my profession, being a professional investigator and being a former agent, because guess what? It wasn't – I was just redundant there. I said guess what twice. Um, okay. Don't worry about it. Sorry. I'm in a, a stream of consciousness here, I guess. Um, here's the thing. When you are a professional investigator, it's not your j- job to tell the reader of your report what to conclude. It's your job to collect and do some analysis. You can do some analysis, but what you're used to is turning in an ROI, a report of investigation, to the JAG, okay, to the people that are going to then bring it to trial and decide what to do with it. And it's not your job to come to conclusions. It's your job to let the evidence, to document the evidence, and if the you know, the evidence says something, you, you report that, but ultimately you're, you're handing it over. I look at my books as ROIs in a way, uh, reports yeah. of investigation where I say, look, here's what I found. Here's what I think. And I mentioned something in the book. I don't know if you got to it, but, um, in, in there's a guy, you know, who will know exactly what this is. It's called an IDP, an internal data page, internal data page. And that's where, um, the investigator, the agent, puts his personal opinions plus things that happened that affected the investigation. Uh, interesting story. I was working a counterintelligence matter, and this was going to be a doozy. It was uh, a good a matter. 
Yeah. <laughs> and um, the very day that I was supposed to go up to a base, uh, l- listen how vague I'm being, to a base with sensitive technology that someone was trying to get to, the very day that my source was going to meet this person who wanted to see this stuff, um, I mean, we're talking 15 minutes before my partner and I walked out the door to drive two or three hours to get there. My boss calls me into her office and she's livid. She's just talking through grit teeth. She's pissed off at something and she's telling me, shut it down. I'm like, but, but it shut it down. Okay. So I did, but I, put that in my IDP, my internal data page, because here's the thing, you know, in that organization, OSI, you get judged, it's all your credibility. And if somebody, you know, when it comes time for someone to do a performance review and they look at your, uh, your ROIs and all they see is an unfinished investigation, you know, um, depending upon the individual, they might say, well, this guy's a dog. Look at that. He didn't finish this. That's why in your IDP, you say, this is unfinished because my commander ordered me to shut it down. You know, so yeah. that that's the kind of thing. It has no business being in the report itself, but it goes into the IDP. But that's just one example. My books are an ROI with a little taste of what would normally go into the the IDP. And the reason I have the analytical aspect, because some investigators would say, well, it's not your job to analyze. Whoa, contraire. When I was with the FBI and I was a Russian translator sitting on a wiretap in an undercover operation that had gone on for about 15 years in Manhattan, um, it closed in the early 90s. But um, when I was doing that, we were the only uh, uh, wiretap translation unit, whatever you want to call it, language specialist unit um, in my understanding was in the FBI that we had a copy of the indices on location and we were the only ones who were who were instructed to provide connections. Usually as a translator, you just listen to your cut, your phone conversation. You do whatever translation, you report what you hear, you write it up, turn it in, on to the next one. Our squad was the only one, this is how it was explained to me, the only one in the FBI translation squad that not only did the cuts, but we would also, we were allowed to ref, you know refer to conversation on such and such date in which this was discussed with you know Mr. GRU or KGB guy and this American and you know um, it could be this or it could be that that kind of thing and the agents loved it the agents were were glad we did that and I'm I'm kind of I'm one of those that when they do that personality thing that psychological personality thing I come up right. very analytical strong and analytical. Um, so this is another reason why in my books, you know, you get the I present the options and I, I try to flesh it out. I try to carry it out and say, well, look, there's this possibility and and blah, 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 so forth. You know, within the within the context of this possibility, this is what could be possible. And that's what could be possible. And it it drives some people crazy, um, usually the people with and I'm going to use a phrase here that Greg Bishop brilliantly uh, came up with, at least I heard it first from him. And he says these people who have a certainty fetish, okay, this fetish for everything's got to be certain, you know, um, uh, first of all, my gosh, what they limit themselves to. 
being that I, I, I see people with such a mind you know a frame of mind as fearful they're scared of something they're scared of life in the full spectrum of reality in my opinion but um, this is why I'm just trying to explain why in my books I leave it up to the reader to decide because you are the you're the you're the legal people you're the judge you're the one that's got to decide what this means and you know you got to conclude for yourself um you can ask me my opinion and what i think and i'll give it but uh, you know i'm i try to avoid telling the reader this is what it is you know this is what i've researched and this is what it is because you know what the fact is not a damn one of us you know, Nobody really knows what it all is. I, anybody who says is, you know, um, they're fooling themselves or they're being led astray by someone else or they're just a damn liar. I would agree with that. <laughs> now, that's that's the shimmering light. And, you know, to, to our dear podcast listeners, uh, definitely pick it up. It's very interesting. Now, I, I have an agenda here. Uh there's another book that uh, Mr. Bosley wrote that I think um, you know it's it's caused a, a buzz. There's a, definitely a, an underground buzz about it, and really, and, yeah, and and uh, I I think the ramifications of what he has found is mind bending, and and I don't I don't think. I know these are pregnant pauses. <clears throat> I don't I don't think that it's gotten the discussion that it needs to have. <clears throat> you know, in from my perspective, right? I I came to this the secret space program by way of the bell and I read Fer, uh, Joseph Farrell's books. I love Joseph. He's a great guy. He really is a genuinely good guy. I've met him. He's awesome. Amazing conversations with him. He's just amazing. And that was the gateway for me to, I read his books and I said, you know what? There's more to this. There's something that I, that's missing here. And for me, it's the end game that I'm, I'm obsessed with the, the end game because that's the thing that nobody ever talks about. We, we all sit around and we say, well, you know, the Germans built UFOs, or the Russians built UFOs, or we built UFOs, or we built space planes, or we did whatever. But nobody ever tries to contemplate the purpose. And, you know, it's the means, motive, and opportunity, something that Mr. Bosley would be very well acquainted with. You know, do you have the means, the motive, and the opportunity? Well, there's, there's also an objective. I mean, as human beings, we don't do anything unless there's a point. That everything we do... Everything we do has an objective. <clears throat> we always have an end game. We go to work so we can save our money so that we can retire. And when we retire, we can do the, the stuff that we want to do. We can live where we want to live. So you, you go to work every day, you punch your ticket, and you, you know, and, and there's a point. Life has a point. Well, conspiracies have a point too. That that you don't expend the amount of energy required to do something like the secret space program unless there's a point. There there has to be an end result. And it and it the end result is not 
so nebulous as, well, gee, we just want to go to the go to space and see what the hell's out there. No, it's not like that. Humans don't function that way. It may be we want to mine the Oort cloud, or you know, we need to put some people somewhere else because of overcrowding, or you know, whatever. But there's always a point. And and when I read uh, Joseph Farrell's works, I saw a connection to something called Alternative Three, and that became my obsession. It's my obsession to this day. It will be my obsession until my dying my dying breath. I just am completely consumed by it. Now, very important to all this is this notion that the Germans built UFOs, and it's or were they, let's not call them UFOs. Let's just call them advanced aircraft and. Farrell touches on it in The Brotherhood of the Bell and his subsequent work, and he talks about the bell, the Glocka. And, you know, I've I've seen some, I've heard some interesting things. Uh, you know, Clyde Lewis, uh, Ground Zero, had a guy named T.D. Barnes on who was, a, he was an, a stealth engineer at Area 51. He had a very interesting conversation with T.D. Barnes about the bell where, you know, he passively kind of admitted that, that we... We had one. We had a bell. And, you know, there's the whole acorn-looking thing at, at Kecksburg. Looks like the bell. And the hieroglyphics could have been runic because most people don't know what runic looks like. And they could have thought it was Egyptian because I could see that. But it's important, before I let Walter speak, it's important to understand where the bell comes from. So the genesis of, of the story about the bell comes from a guy named Igor Watowski. And Igor Watowski, from Igor Watowski, you get Nick Cook and the, the Hunt for Zero Point. You get Joseph Farrell with the Brotherhood of the Bell. Um, Tarzitsky, and, and, and you get Jim Keith and a whole bunch of other guys that find these linkages. But the source, the original source, as far as I know, is Watowski. And Watowski had gotten his information from a Polish intelligence officer who read a document where they had interrogated a guy named Jacob Sporenberg. And Sporenberg was in the SS, and he was more in the law enforcement branch of the SS because we don't commonly know this unless you give a shit, but the SS was broken into units. And one of the units I've always been interested in is a group called the Ananerbi. They're the guys that you saw in Indiana Jones trying to open the Ark of the Covenant. These are the guys that were looking for the Ark of the Covenant, the Spear of Destiny, these holy relics. That's the Ananerbi. I always refer to them as as Himmler's warrior monks or Hitler's warrior monks because they were kind of occult monks some of them, but at the same time, they were also PhD archaeologists, anthropologists, geographers, you know, cryptologists. They basically, when the Nazis came to power, <clears throat> they went into the universities and drained them of all their professors and researchers and forced them into the Ananerbi. And so Sporenberg was in the SS, but he was in the law enforcement. From what I remember, he was in the more of the law enforcement branch of the SS. But being in the SS, there was the soldiers SS, the Ananerbi SS, the research SS, you know, and then the law enforcement SS. And in his capacity in the SS, he had heard things about this thing called Deglaca, the bell, because it looks like a bell, you know, and that it was developed at a place called Derisi, the giant that, that's in the Hartz Mountains, yada, yada, yada. But Sporenberg never said that he had ever seen it, that he had ever interacted with it. He had heard about it. 
And when they were when they were interrogating Sporenberg, Sporenberg went off ad nauseum about it because I think Sporenberg believed that he could save his own life because the Poles wanted to kill him. They wanted to execute him for being in the SS. They eventually did execute him, if I remember correctly, so it didn't help him. But he was just going off and off and off and off trying to save his own ass. So everything comes from this work of Sporenberg. Now, they're the well, work, his story. Now, what what seems to have happened from there is that the logical conclusion was, oh, well, this guy, Hans Kamler, who's a very interesting cat, died like six times. Nobody knows where he went. He was originally a, a um, he was a civil engineer. He, you know, he designed concentration camps. He eventually took over Penamunda and the research programs for the SS uh, late in the war. Well, it was always believed that they were working on something high technology and sophisticated at Derisi. And so everything has been from the point of view about the hinge where they tethered the bell and all this other stuff. You can read my book or Farrell's book. Farrell's book is really awesome. You can Igor Rutowski wrote a book. You can get the one chapter in Nick Cook's book about Hunt for Zero Point. You know, there are a lot of places you can read about the bell. You can watch the History Channel thing about the bell. It's everywhere, right? But the premise was always, well, they were developing this bell thing. Now, so I'm I'm sitting there talking to Mr. Bosley, and Mr. Bosley and I are friends. You know, we get that up front. And we're having a conversation, as we commonly do. In fact, we talked for about a half an hour before this even started about movies. But we were talking, and he goes, hey, you should see this picture. This is really interesting. I think you – and I believe you did this at the Secret Space Program. I think yeah. you – yeah, I think you'd get a kick out of this. I found this picture that this guy Charles Del Shao drew, and I'll let him get into that because he's the expert. And and it it, it looks kind of like the bell. What do you think? And he shows me this picture, and I'm like, oh my god, that's the bell. <laughs> now I'm gonna let. Now I, I'm I'm gonna shut up for a minute because I can talk a lot. I'm gonna let Mr. Bosley here explain what he found. And then we can discuss what I think the ramifications of what he found is, and then we'll go from there. So, Mr. Bosley. Okay. It all – I cannot remember. I cannot pinpoint the first instance I heard of the Sonora Aero Club. It might have been from Greg Bishop in a casual conversation when we were talking about Eclampus Vitus, which – people that know about quirky California history know who they are. Yeah, they, uh, they are a very quirky, weird bunch of yes people. They are. Yes, they are. Who may or may not be telling the truth depending upon what they're saying. <laughs> yes, and and the location where you find their plaque. Yeah. May, may or so, may not be what they say it is. <laughs> right. Um, but I do believe the first time I heard of NIMSA was in a book by a, a writer named Theo Pimans. A book specifically called Free Energy Pioneer, The Life of John Warrell Keeley. I highly recommend that book to anyone interested in the whole Tesla free energy um, or what I write about, you know, regarding the airship mystery. Uh, you got to get that book, Theo Pimans. It's really good. And um, that was where I first read of NIMSA. And then that led to... uh, as, as I was going into my research 
I ended up being introduced to a gentleman named Dennis Crenshaw. Uh, Mike Mott, for those familiar with uh, different researchers out there, Mike Mott is an excellent researcher, is a good friend of mine. He introduced me to Dennis Crenshaw, who used to be one of the guys um, at, I think it was Hollow Earth Insider, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. it was and, That was Dennis's thing. And Mike Mott, is he wrote an amazing book about caverns and weird... Caverns, yeah. underdwellers. Yeah, Mike's book is... You've got well, it. Mike's caverns, book. cauldrons, and something. It's yeah, <laughs> And... Um, so, yeah, he introduced me to Dennis, and Dennis sent me his book titled The Secrets of Del Shao. And I had bought a book that I had not read yet. That happens a lot when you're a bibliophile. In the early 2000s, I had bought a book by Michael Busby, and there's a reason I'm saying all these names, Michael Busby, um, titled Solving the 1897 Airship Mystery. Again, highly recommended. Highly recommended. Um, but what had happened was between Theo Pimans, Dennis Crenshaw, Michael Busby, and then Sean Castile, and I believe Tim Schwartz, and then finally a gentleman named Stephen Romano, um, Crenshaw introduced me to P.J. Navarro who was the man who discovered the Delshaw material, which I'll get to. But um, Crenshaw, Pimans, Navarro, Busby, Romano, Schwartz, and Castile. These were the guys who I first learned about NIMSA and the Sonora Aero Club and Charles Delshaw from. And their work really introduced this whole mystery of this man, Charles Delshaw, onto the scene and the mysterious group NIMSA, who Delshaw claims he worked for. And what happened was, you know, I was speaking earlier about having an analytical mind. Um, <coughs> excuse me. As I read the material of all these authors, I, you know, was able to put together a picture and knowing Joseph, we've been friends since 2004, and being familiar with his research on the Nazis and the Bell, which we're getting into here, um, I was pretty aware of the 20th century, you know, German Nazi origin aspects of uh, the Bell and, and the, the whole idea that they developed the flying saucers. And then here I was learning about this Sonora Aero Club that dates back to the 1850s. And this man, Charles Delshaw, who was a German immigrant who worked for um, a German organization called NIMSA. And, you know, how we go from the 1850s and then, oh, there's this airship mystery that, um, you know, these other books are talking about. And yet they're connected according to Pymans, and specifically, Pymans refers to a book I have a copy of from 1893, Clara Bloomfield Moore, that talks about the NIMSA. And I began to see, wait a minute, there's a thread here. Delshaw, whose story dates back to the 1850s with the Sonora Aero Club in California, says he worked for NIMSA, and NIMSA was the umbrella organization that made all these 
airship groups able to dabble in their flight technology? Yes, anti-gravity flight technology. And yet here was in the late 19th century, these people talking about the same organization, same spelling, this NIMSA, and they're um, insinuating some connection to the airship mystery of the 1890s. Well, the fact that Delschau was a German immigrant and he swore that NIMSA, you know, he said that NIMSA was headquartered in Germany and that, you know, he referred to um, a, a NIMSA representative who had come to California. He referred to him as a Prussian officer. So anyway, I'm looking at this, all this stuff, and it, it's just nagging me. And I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, Joseph's work and Kowski's work and, and this work about this 20th century legend of the bell. And I realized, hey, wait a minute. The threat of the Germans that are pursuing this stuff and developing it. And it dawned on me there's got to be some type of connection between what the Nazis were doing and, and specifically with the bell and what these guys were doing with anti-gravity, allegedly, in the 1850s in California. And then again in the 1890s, somebody was fooling with anti-gravity. When you get in, and this goes back to the details you mentioned before, when you get in and look at the details, you know, um, it's like Richard Dreyfus and Jaws saying, this was no boating accident. When you look at the details of the airship mystery, this was no ET event. This is a very uh, human originated thing that was going on here in the 19th century with this airship mystery and the Sonora Aero Club. Um, but dealing with very old, ancient, lost technology. So with this in mind that there's a German thread running through all this. I thought, well, you know, this makes sense. If they started fooling with this in the 1850s, how far, you know, it made sense that the, the, to the extent that they would have developed it in the 1890s and, you know, on into the 20th century. And then I found it. You did. Um, the, uh, and, and I found it thanks to Pete Navarro, Dennis Crenshaw, and Stephen Romano. And, and here's why I say that. In Dennis Crenshaw's book, The Secrets of Delshaw, he publishes Navarro's drawings of what Navarro saw in the Delshaw material. And what it was was a spinning drum with some type of mysterious lubricant or liquid applied to it and this would cause the the uh, propulsion, the mode of propulsion to activate. Well, you got something spinning and you've got this mysterious liquid being applied to it. You know, then I think about the description of the bell, which is two pieces that fit and spin counter to each other. And in between is this liquid, you know, um, I thought, well, the basic principle is there. Um so around the time that I had been talking about this, and, and I believe it was after I published my first thoughts on the names and the Sonora Aero Club and such um, in Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora, published in 2013, in which I also, and I'll get to that, I also provide the first and only that I'm aware of German translation of NIMSA that anyone's ever come up with. 
Um, but after that book, Stephen Romano of the Romano Gallery in New York sent me um, a complimentary copy of the beautiful book on the Del Shao art. It's a huge, it's, oversized volume. It's heavy. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah, on the great paper in full color. And, I mean, this book w- would be well worth buying. Oh, yeah. And and so he sent me this book. And as I'm pouring through this book, I'm I'm actually seeing more of Del Shell's art than I've ever seen before. And I'll get back to that. Um, But there it was. Not only were the spinning drums and stuff that Navarro told about, but there was (laughs) on one of the arrows. This was drawn in the 1890s depicting a craft or the design of a craft that was to be built or was built in the 1850s. And there, the engine, the motor, the propulsion device that made the whole thing work was a bell-shaped object that was spinning around a central axis. I mean, there are even arrows that show how it spins. Yeah. And... (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, the way he describes it, he, he says it's it's the propulsion device. It's the thing that, you know, makes it go and gives them their, you know, their anti-gravity. And there it was drawn in the 1890s, which is 30 years, maybe 40 years before the bell supposedly was first being developed. And and even more astonishingly. This drawing that predates the Nazis by 30 or 40 years is depicting something that happened e- even farther back, 40 more additional years. So, you know, in the 1850s, the decade before the American Civil War, we're talking 80 years before the Nazis. Mm-hmm. These guys, these these German immigrants, the members of the Sonora Aero Club were – German immigrants, keep that in mind. They were being overseen by a German-based group called NIMSA, specifically a Prussian group, because at the time, Germany was not unified. It was a collection of Prussian states. It was pre-unification. And they were fooling around with the bell in the 1850s. So basically what I did was I took that German thread and hooked it up to the needle of the bell, <laughs> the, the bell being the needle. And when you go through the 1890 airship mystery, you find spin rotation. You find torsion, which is what Joseph talks about right. and the others. But this is how the bell works. It's it's torsion. You find this even in the 1890s, anti-gravity and spin rotation. OK. Now, what they added in the 1890s was resonance, vibration. And that that followed Keeley. Keeley was fooling with resonance and vibration a, a decade or more before the 1890s airship mystery. And then in, by the 1890s, you have both spinning, rotating uh, apparatuses plus uh, vibration. You know, you would tap you know, this little phalange sticking out and the thing would just go. So here we have the stories of this kind of technology you know, leading up to in the decades before, you know, um, 20th century Germany. And then, of course, the develop, you know, the 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 rise of the Nazis and their scientists and such. So it seemed to me, hey, wait a minute here. 
the pedigree of this bell did not start um, with Nazi Germany. It did not start with the guys you were talking about earlier, the Ananerbi. They didn't go into some cave and, you know, find this, you know, a book about this thing. Um, what I have found, what I think happened was the Nimza, which I think exists to this day. I think the Nimza organization, they're the ones that were the source that the Nazis got the bell from. Um, they had been developing it. And what I think the Nazis were doing was the next generation of the bell. But there it was, drawn in the 1890s. It's astonishing. You've seen it. I put it in my talk in Bastrop. That was the first time I publicly presented this. Um, when I told uh, Steve Romano about it, I don't think he, he realized it. He had not really made the connection or seen that particular plate since he put the book together. And um, imagine Joseph Farrell's reaction. You know, the, the I think the jaw was on the floor for a whole day. Um, well, he ended up getting a copy of the book, the Romano book himself. Well, if, if I can mention, when you show that slide, when you discussed it at Ballstrip at the Secret Space Program conference, you could Best. hear you yeah Ballstrip. You could hear a pin drop. There was silence. Now normally, it, it shocked them. <laughs> it shocked them. Now normally in a conference, you know you'll you'll be talking and you can see people like oh that's interesting oh that's interesting and they're like little chit chatting amongst the the people that you know there were like. Four or five hundred people there, but you can see them like chit, chit chatting a little bit and take a lot of people take crazy notes, and they're chit chatting. When you when you showed that slide and you explained to them what they were seeing, you could hear a pin drop, and the only thing that I saw was people trying to draw what you were what you were showing. That's cool. That's I that, that, that you know, and and that's what I hoped it would do was get their attention to show them that that this is what I try to do with my research on this. This is what I tried to do then, of course, with the book Origin, which, you know, um, uh, covers the stuff in my talk and then some. Um, it was to show that the secret to this, um, it's this NIMSA group, this, this mysterious NIMSA group. Now, I mentioned before, I should probably, for your readers who aren't familiar with Navarro and Del Shell and all that, Pete Navarro is a guy who um, in, he lived in Texas, and he there was a junk shop he would go to, uh, run by a guy uh, named Washington, I think, and um, he would go there and get parts for stuff. I think for art projects and stuff, and um, he noticed some books that were these old scrapbooks that had the, the just the most colorful drawings of these strange contraptions. And there was a bunch of them, several of these things. And the guy at the junk shop was going to throw them away. He actually, he found them in the trash. Yeah, he found them in a the dumpster. Yeah. Yeah, in a dumpster. And he got them out and they were in his junk shop and he didn't know what to do with them. So Pete Navarro bought as many of them as he could afford. And there was a strange coded... Um, language, a strange, weird, runic, but not runes kind of odd language that this Delshaw gentleman had written much of what he was talking about, you know, regarding the Nimza and the Aero Club. He had used this strange language. Now, go back to, you know, some people say that strange symbols were drawn around the Nazi bell. And then, of course, we have Kecksburg. Which you know the, the strange coded uh, language, and um, this I, I have to say it, but 
here's the connection to my um, Richard Francis Burton book. Um, you know, uh, there, there's some interesting stuff in there about an ancient lost civilization and their, their weird language and the symbols of the alphabet of this language really starkly resemble what Delshaw was using. Anyway, it, it tells the story of this, this group, the Sonora Aero Club, German immigrants who in the 1850s were messing around with, quite frankly, anti-gravity. And of course, I say the bell. Um, the torsion technology. And as I said before, they were overseen by this mysterious group, NIMSA. And uh, Delshaw spells it N-Y-M-Z-A. And it's all, it's an acronym. It's all capital letters. And because by the 1890s in the airship mystery, they were talking about investors from the East Coast, bankers from New York who had, were secretly funding these uh, airships. The assumption has always been made that NIMZA, N-Y-M-Z-A, had to have something to do with New York. The NY had to be New York. It had to be New York. It just had to be New York because there's an NY there. Now, coming from my perspective, having been a professional linguist for a few years, I was a Russian translator for the FBI. And, you know, I look at things linguistically. And, you know, I, I, I read Del Shao you know, claimed that NIMSA was a German-based organization. It was headquartered in Germany. And I thought, well, the NY can't mean New York. What else could it be? So then I thought, wait a minute, I'm going to think like a linguist here. And I'm going to see if I can find any German words that would fit NYMZA. And what I found kind of astonished me because the J, of course, is pronounced like a ya. You know, the 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 the, the my translation is the nationalistisch Jagdflugzeug Maschinenzahlungsassad, um, uh, which basically in English parlance, for you know, you military p- types out there that have worked in program offices, we would call it the nationalist. Um, Pursuit Exploration Airship Program Office, which is the, the English gist of what we're saying here. But I indeed found the German words. And the, the issue that, you know, people would have is the J instead of the Y. But remember I said the J in this instance is pronounced like a Y, a Ja, a, you know, Jagdflugzeug, which is you know, a hunting flying thing is the best way I can describe that. Well, there's an there's a little matter of transliteration. Linguists will know exactly what I'm talking about. And transliteration is this. Take Russian, for example. Russian uses the Cyrillic alphabet. It's not our alphabet. It's a different alphabet. It's like the Greek alphabet and the Cherokee alphabet. It's, you know, very similar to those. It's what we would call strange, you know, symbols. It's a different alphabet. And when you want to teach someone how to pronounce Russian words correctly, what you'll do with a non-Russian speaker is use our alphabet, the one we use, you know, in English and such. Um, You'll use our alphabet and the sounds in our alphabet to match the sounds in the Cyrillic alphabet. So, you know, um, 
they may not be able to read Cyrillic, but when you've transliterated how the pronunciation of the word is into the English alphabet, they are at least pronouncing it properly. Okay, this is called transliteration, not transliteration. So under the rules of transliteration, I realized, oh, it's a perfect fit. The J is the Y, the Y. Now, Delshaw, when he was writing the English portions of his diary and referring in English to Nimza, not in the coded language, in the English version, um, he was using transliteration because the pronunciation in the German of the one that I came up with, the NJMZ, I use a lowercase a, um, that Nimza, the nearest he could come up with, in, you know, for English speakers was N-Y-M-Z-A, NIMZA. You know, and you pronounce the, the proper spelling of it, NIMZA. You know, okay, I guess he could have used an I, but here's why he didn't. Jagdflugzug, it's distinctly a Y sound. It's a Y, okay? So this was how I translated NIMZA. Um, according to what Dalshaw says about NIMSA, it is not the New York Motor Zephyr Association, as good as that is and as cool as that sounds. It is not that. It could not be that because NIMSA existed before the 1890s airship mystery, before you know some of these New York bankers were born. So um, now there are some people who vehemently disagree with me. <laughs> there always are. Um, uh, huh? There always are. Yeah, there always are people with you know who are friends of mine who are you know in the uh, interested in it. Who initially their reaction was very you know tepid um, because I think that, you know they love the idea of this New York Motors Effort Association and on and so forth. So um, I did that translation in 2013, and what that did for me was provide, hey, wait a minute, this is even more evidence that this was the bell because I can I can provide a legitimate uh, proposed um, translation of what Nimza actually means and it's very distinctly German. And then once I did that, I was able then to, you know, do what I do in the book Origin and uh, a little bit in Empire of the Wheel too mostly in origin where I was able to then look at the 19th century, you know, look at the Prussian states and look at the Prussian, you know, uh, banking industry and, and the industrialists. And I was able to um, come up with a list of the guys who would have been the NIMSA, most likely the, the major industrialists and specifically the ones who were also into the esoteric, into the arcane and the occult, because there is a bit of that involved in the NIMSA here, because uh, I'm convinced that where they got the idea to develop this anti-gravity technology, where they got the idea from the bell and such, um, I think is relative to where stories of the Vimanas come from. I, I think it goes back to the lost the, 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 we're talking about the forgotten technology, the lost technology of the forgotten civilization that was advanced, you know, technologically advanced human civilization. And I think that, that NIMSA 
it was their so-called Anunnaki. It was their so-called mystical warriors who had, through the years, um, gotten their hands on um, this this lost technology. And, you know, maybe through the uh, mystery schools, through the various, you know, Masonic type fraternal orders and stuff over the years. But, um, um, yeah, uh, you know, it was being able to translate Nimza. Again, it's so very important to remember that Del Shell says that Nimza was a German headquartered, a German based organization. There's no way Nimza in spite of the NY, and I've explained that fully in my book, there's no way that could be a New York-based organization. And, it, uh, and it, it's also important to point out that when you're talking about these bankers from the East, that even up into the 40s, that there were a number of bankers from the turn of the century all the way through the 40s <laughs> that financed the Germans, financed the Nazis. I mean, Prescott oh, yeah, was and, tried and for it. Threat. Yeah. Yeah, I show that whole thread. And don't get me wrong, the, the New York investors of the 1890s airship mystery, yes, they were involved in, in this stuff. But they were also uh, sympathizers. We're, yeah, we're, we're talking, you know, specifically about the, the NIMSA, you know, in this particular case. Now, of course, I get into this group called the 1903 because I think the source of the 1890s airship mystery was not the German groups. I think they were busier elsewhere. Uh, South America and such at the time. Um, I think the 1890s airship mystery, um, the source of that was <laughs> what I have proposed was the first American black project, which I suggest was kicked off at the end of the Civil War and 30 years later, what they had developed was what people were seeing in the skies over the western United States. And, you know, it's hard to follow that up. You know, the, the reason why the, this is so important and why Origins is so important is because it changes the entire dialogue about the belt. The no, no longer are we talking about an object that was being developed. It was developed. It, it was functional. It had been functional for 80 years. We're now talking about them extending it. And that means that the capabilities that they had, even up into the 40s, was exponential. It mm -hmm. also shows that these things that they were doing, the V1s, the V2s, the buzz bombs, you know, the Messerschmitt 262, the, the 163, the Comet, uh, I forget the name of it, but the, um, the one that's like a cruise missile. You know, mm -hmm. it, <clears throat> these things that they built, they were not what they were what the Germans were capable of building. Those were for expedience, I believe. Those yeah. were the we got to come up with something at hand to fight this war. Right. Um, but it, it changes the entire dialogue. It, the, the entire dialogue about the bell is now way beyond where Watowski started it because Sporenberg was wrong. Sporenberg was in a position where, and like anybody in the military, right, he heard rumors, and he did his best to analyze those rumors and to contextualize those rumors, and then he told the Polish intelligence guys this to save his own ass. But it exposes that Sporenberg really, it's always been believed that Sporenberg didn't have the, the whole 
the whole story, but now it really shows that he didn't have the whole story. And and what's interesting is that you were talking about the Nimza and they're, they're on a Nerbi. You know, when the on a Nerbi, they the on a Nerbi is probably tied to Nimza pretty heavily, I would sure. imagine, because they continued it. You know, we we talk about the on a Nerbi. You, you need to point out that that you know seven years in Tibet. Well, that guy Hans um, Hans Schiffer, he was a zoologist, and he he led a Ananerbi expedition to Tibet. And although they did some phrenology and and you know genetic analysis of the Tibetans, and supposedly brought back a bunch of Tibetan monks uh, to Germany, they they were intrigued by the Tibetan use of the swastika and the Tibetan use of the the dark sun. Symbol, symbolism, but they were really after Shambhala Nagarti. They were trying to find these lost cities of Shambhala Nagarti. They they had dedicated themselves to finding Ultima Thule. They had dedicated themselves to finding these lost cities that existed. Right. And you know, and and in South America as well. So they, you know, it's almost like they were continuing probably under Nimza's supervision, what Nimza was doing before and trying to find yeah. more of this stuff, frankly. They did some right. other kooky things, but <laughs> they looked for the Holy Grail. Sure. Otto Ron and all that. But Well, you know, you're, you're, you're in, in, here's the thing. The, 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 what you're talking about here is that, you know, everybody has heard the stories about how the occult sciences inspired the you know, like the Thule Society and the organizations from which the the guys who created and formed, founded the Nazi Party came from, and they that they were interested in this kind of stuff. Well, what's interesting is the occult organizations, the occult science organizations that we talk about when we talk about the early days of the Nazis. These organizations were very much the product of the, the big um, spiritualist um, uh, occult movement of the day and of the, the couple of decades prior. And when you read Clara Bloomfield Moore's book in 1893, she's talking NIMSA in there. <coughs> um, Theo Pymans points out that, you know, NIMSA's all over the Keeley 1890s milieu, you know, what, what was going on then. Um, even though I do not think that the source of the airship scene were was German, and that's I get into that in the book. But um, here's the thing: it, it, it's clear that the pedigree um, of the Nazis came from the Nimza. You know, it was the Nimza that had their hand in these uh, these occult groups in the 1880s, 1890s, going into the 20th century. And they had their influence in their hand in the occult groups that rose in the early 20th century that then influenced the Nazis, see? And that's how the Nimza – see, I, I say this in the beginning of the book. In my opinion, the Nazis, they're a product of the Nimza. Absolutely. They are a product of this group Nimza. And, and it's important that in your <laughs> translation you, you talk about the nationalist – the nationalist, the nationalist, that, that word is very specific. And that, yes. and when you talk about the Nazis, they were the nationalist socialists. It's yes. A, you know, it's always nationalist, nationalist, nationalist. So it's not, but, but you got to be careful with that word because it's not in the sense of, you know, your, your standard sense of like nationalism. 
No. Which a lot of people like to hate on these days. But uh, we're talking, you know, national is different. And I go into this in the book. National is very distinctly different from nationalist. Um, it's kind of like when they say there's Muslims and then there's Islamists, right? And it's from the Islamists where we get the fanatics who want to rule the world, right? right. Well, for, for these particular kind of nationalists we're talking about are globalist types, collectivist type nationalists. And, um, you know, it, it, when, when, you, when you understand them that way, then the rise of the Nazis makes perfect sense, just like you point out the nationalist socialist. You know, it's taking it's you know, you can take anything and make it bad, all right? Nationalism in itself, you know, with the small N, is not an evil thing. It all depends on the people who are wielding it and what their agenda is. Um, and of course the Nazis proved what evil can be done. Oh, yeah. By applying it, you know, applying fascism to nationalism. But it, it just it changes the whole conversation. And mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think that, that that point has been made strongly enough that, you know, now when we talk about the bell disappearing, you know, one of the one of the bones of contention has always been. And, and I tried to address this, that they had numerous, <clears throat> numerous ways to get the bell out of there. You know, they there was a large aircraft that the Germans had developed, the Junkers, uh, they uh, called the America Bomber. They had originally designed mm-hmm. it to drop an, an atomic bomb on New York. And they flew a photographic mission over, over New, New York. York yes. Um, that spies later revealed to us. It scared the hell out of us, out of the, you know, out of oh, our yeah. war. And and they used they used the two the four engine version the the big one was six engines they used the four engine version, and supposedly mid air refueled it in the forties, over God. the over the Atlantic. So yeah. if you if you could land that thing, and there I think there were six of them in existence. Kamler had access to like three or four of them, and they're mm-hmm. big. They're not C five big, but they're like C one forty one C one thirty big. Yeah, and for the nineteen forties, that's, that's holy crap. Yeah. And if those things had such a significant range that if the, if they could even without midair refueling, if they mm-hmm. could have gotten Africa, they could have gotten Antarctica or Argentina or sure. any, anywhere else they wanted to go. Yep. But given that the the bell was in a much more advanced state than we've ever understood it to be, it's mm-hmm. quite possible that they used devices that were driven by the bell because it, we now know to some to some to some degree because i mean again you know these are it's conjecture it, it appears to be what it is mm-hmm. you know nothing is absolute but if it was as advanced as it appears to have been having been built 80 years before mm-hmm. it's quite possible that they had an entire fleet of objects that could fly using bell technology and then they could go wherever they wanted so the disappearance of camler <clears throat> the disappearance of the scientists, the disappearance of the proto- what we have commonly referred to as the prototype, mm-hmm. you know, that's perfectly understandable. They probably could have loaded it onto the less advanced version of the bell and flown it out. And now, you know, when we talk about the Foo Fighters and, you know, it's like, who knows what that stuff was? The, and this, well, I mean, and you have to ask the question. 
you know, where did I wish someone would do would do some type of trail of providence on this. But, you know, where did this Admiral Byrd story come from? You know, um, what is the nugget of truth in that? What you're talking about explains the the bird story. I'm not talking about the one where he allegedly flew into the hollow earth. I'm talking about the one where he told reporters that, you know, the reason that uh, the operation down there ended in just a few weeks instead of months right. was because they encountered a hostile foe, you know, that could fly from pole to pole. And, you know, this was, this was a crisis. And then, of course, the rest of the story is that when he gets back to Washington, he speaks before a closed session of Congress, according to the story. And uh, he discusses what he saw, what they found in Antarctica. And allegedly, that session of Congress and what was discussed allegedly remains classified to this day. And it- now. I've never pursued the provenance of any of these stories. It, it might be worthwhile. It also explains why in 1942, FDR funded the M Project, that in, in, the, in the early 40s, FDR funded a, a black project, and it was very highly funded at the time, to send an eminent anthropologist, Henry Field, out with a whole bunch of other anthropologists and geographers and so the what would then be sociologists psychologists to determine how humans would migrate in the event of a cataclysm whether mm. it's war or environmental and when they completed that document called the m project the migration project it was classified and henry field uh, the field museum field's department store guy was loaded Henry Field tried in vain for decades to get it declassified. He finally got it declassified, and nobody would publish it. <laughs> Shades of Three Days of the Condor, the film. Oh, remember? I know, I know. In the end, you know, you know, how do you know they'll publish it? How do you know? <laughs> how do you know? Now, so, the Field Museum, that's in Chicago, correct? That is in Chicago. Um, what's interesting is the lines of Savo... Um, are there, which anybody who's seen the film The Ghost in the Darkness, a little side little side note. Well, so he finally got it declassified. Nobody would publish it. So he published it again, or he published it himself. He paid for mm-hmm. it, and it, it drifted into obscurity. Hmm. And <clears throat> when you read it, it's very interesting that they go through all kinds of scenarios. They talk about how humans migrate and what their motivations are and yada 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 and in the end they come down to well if there's a cataclysm there's really nothing we can do about it so our best bet is to go into space oh my god and they said but are you kidding me no and they said but alpha centauri's too far alternative three alternative three the real altern- alternative M. The real alternative three. And most likely, given what T.D. Barnes said, and it was a very interesting discussion, that they were talking about stuff, and, and Clyde popped it on him the way that, you know, you hate having things popped on you in an interview. Clyde popped it on him and said, so T.D., so tell me something. Have you ever heard of the bell? And he said something to the effect, and you can listen to it, it's on SoundCloud somewhere. He said a, to, something to the effect of, I don't know what you're talking about, the bell. Or he said, Der Glocke. And he, I don't know what you're talking about. I worked at Area 51. He did. 
and he, he's the president of Roadrunners International, the guys that flew the A-12s. I mean, really nice guy, awesome guy. I love that guy to death. Well, anyway, Clyde says, well, you know, the bell. And he goes, oh, that Nazi crap? Oh, yeah, all that stuff went to Ray Patterson. See, that's that that's Clyde being a good interviewer. That's not springing a, a, no, a hostile was, guest on you. That's just Clyde doing a good job. Yeah, but what he got was a passive confirmation that, that yes. something like the bell exactly. was, was sent to Ray Patterson. And that, that right there is – Clyde ought to look at that as one of the – the, the 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 jewels in his crown of achievements as a host, you know, because that's a biggie right there. That's a biggie, and there and for my for my perspective as a secret space guy, the other biggie that he got was one night I was on. We were talking about Project Thor and Brilliant Pebbles and all that, the Elmas and the Mole and all that other stuff that we fired into orbit. Mm-hmm. And some guy called in the last fifteen minutes of the show, and he said. You know, I'm I live up in the Pacific Northwest and he says, I'm an aerospace engineer and I'm an old guy. I'm in my you know, but back in the seventies, down somewhere in California, we worked on a project and we built a constellation of, of uh you know, of Star Wars satellites and, and he went on to explain the whole call was about nine minutes and he went on to explain what he had worked on and that there was an AI system on one of them is fairly sophisticated for the time, but by today's standards, it would probably be not that sophisticated, but whatever. And then he goes, that's it. That's all I got to say. And he hung up. He used a a fake name, you know, but he he told a story that that was a confirmation that Star Wars was deployed under Jimmy Carter. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Well, and remember the MX missile system. I remember... I remember the Sunday that there was a huge article in our Sunday paper that was telling all about the MX missile system. This was in the late 70s. Right. It showed the tunnels that were going to be dug, going to be dug, I say in quotes, and um, how it was going to work. And there were graphics with it. I remember colorful graphics, you know, showing these things. And uh, this was during the Carter administration. And... Um, you know, uh, uh, it, it 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 speaks to that whole thing. You know, if you've ever known anybody that's in, particularly in defense technology, you know, they'll tell you they'll say something along the lines of, "Look, what you know about, we always have something twenty years ahead of that." Oh yeah. And what you know about, you don't know its true limitations and capabilities. If if the ceiling is X, if you're told the ceiling is X, the ceiling's probably X, Y, Z. Um, if you're told that it's got this kind of armament, it's probably got a little bit more than that. We're talking the advanced, you know, stuff. And then there's the stuff that that it not that you know about, but they're not going to tell you the full scope of what it's got. There's the stuff that you don't know about that's out there flying around and moving about. And and you know, if if we had access to the bell, which we obviously did, mm-hmm. and and technicians and scientists that understood it, which we obviously did. You know, now things like Project Horizon and Project Lunix make sense. Yes. You know, in in 1959, 1958, the Air Force, because the Air Force doesn't like the Army and the Army doesn't like the Air Force, 
you know, you have an Ajax rocket and the and the Air Force has missiles and the army isn't allowed to have airplanes, you know. All this kind of inter inter interdepartmental rivalry bullshit. The at the about the same time, the Air Force published a document called Project Lunex. And the Air Force was going to build a moon base crewed by like 30 soldier astronauts or 30 or 40 of them on this thing that was mobile that was called Lunex and of course it's the Air Force so it's going to be mobile they can move it etc etc at the same time the Army published something called Project Horizon which was to build basically quant sealed Quonset huts buried by Regolith and it was to be crewed by 100 and by, a, by 1962 it was to be crewed by 160 soldier astronauts and it was a moon base and they they both believe the air force and the army believe that that within a year or two they could uh, they could have it built and operational mm-hmm. and this is in the late 50s and then you know i i came across a uh, a photo taken by soho of some weird thing out there by venus somewhere mm-hmm. that looked like a space station mm-hmm. and when you compare it against because people don't know this, right. but NASA has a huge art department, and they love making paintings. Paintings, yes, they do. Oh, they do, and they they make paintings and drawings, and and nobody ever pays attention to it, but they're pretty good. Well, there was a painting from the Air Force slash NASA, because they're very tightly integrated. The yes. burn, the burn memo shows us that. Now, I'll get to that in a second. But this thing that was out by Venus looked astonishingly like the concept art <clears throat> from the early 60s of a space station. And, and this stuff all dates back to the 50s and the 60s. And right. if we had the capabilities, well, the black helicopters, if, yeah, we, yeah. if we had the capability of utilizing the Bell technology, which if it was at Wright-Patterson, we would have. Mm-hmm. Having a having a, a space station out by Venus is not beyond the pale. That's the right. pr- that's the problem with what you've discovered. That once you, once you made that discovery, you can't take it back, and everything that everything suddenly makes a whole hell of a lot more sense. By you know, how could we on one hand be turning off the shuttle? And I, I remember as a child of the 80s, I remember Reagan, you know, showing these videos of space shuttles landing on runways on the moon and taking off. And mm-hmm. I remember the I remember the art around the the um, Star Wars system, the National Aerospace Plane. Right. The National Aerospace Plane, the X, X-47, I think it was the the Valkyrie, the. The supersonic supersonic uh, suborbital bomber, which parts of it are at a museum not far from my house, but I think believe it was called the Valkyrie. But you know, it's like suddenly a lot of these things make sense. How in 2017 can we have a secret space program that is so sophisticated that they could be implementing Alternative Three? How could we have all these bizarre planes and weird things that we see in space now? The bell is a propulsion system. It doesn't yeah. matter the shape of the object you wrap around it. The propulsion system is a bell. The other interesting thing is that these designs of the Haunaboo and, and these UFOs that we're supposedly seeing, 
you know, they're they're astonishing. And, and the contactees, you know, the Adamski photos, and Adamski's linked to the Germans, by the way. How you know they all are astonishingly similar to the sports model that Lazar saw at S four. They they all have the same look and feel. They you know the the gravity amplifiers on the bottom, you know, but it all requires a gravity motor. And that, mm. and, you know, granted that the bell is different than what Lazar saw, but who, you know, and I believe Lazar, I, I've, I've gone on record many times saying that I believe that Lazar believes what he's saying. I don't know that everything Lazar says he saw, he really saw, but he definitely absolutely is telling the truth as far as he knows. And, and I wonder if he, the propulsion system that he saw was not the actual propulsion system, that it was a stand-in because that wasn't his problem. His problem was in other places. Well, consider this. Consider this. Think about what it is he described he saw, right? Okay. And then consider that certain military aircraft, when they're on the ground – some of the components are removed. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. That that I wonder if what he saw was maybe not the complete system or Yeah, the bell was removed. The bell the was tors- removed. The torsion propulsion well, system had been removed and it's in a you know, it's saved away in a vault. Well, he he said something very interesting that 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 is that the guy that he supposedly replaced what they had done is they had taken the the reactor that he mm-hmm. talks about this element 115 reactor they had taken it into a mountain and it at the test range and they had attempted to cut it open and when it cut out when they tried to cut it open it exploded and when it exploded they they covered that up as saying it was an unscheduled nuclear test and indeed an unscheduled nuclear test occurred on the day that he said it did but if you tried to cut the bell open, well, you know, if you could even get near it while it was in operation, if you tried to cut it open, it would explode mm. because you're dealing with torsion. You're dealing with rotating rotating devices. If you yeah. attempted to turn it on and cut it open, it would explode. It would disintegrate and fly into pieces and cause a huge problem. So, I mean, there there's some level of, of concurrency with what he's saying. But again, the thing that I get back to that that's that's stunning to me is that what you found it seems to indicate that the bell was in use fully functional maybe primitive but fully functional 80 to 90 years before before Hans Kamler ever put his hands on it it was in operation 50 years before Hans Kamler was born and that is huge well and and I, I appreciate you Seeing that, that's that's it's you know people say well if all these other guys were writing about Del Shaw and the and the the um, the Nimza and stuff what the hell did Bosley contribute What I've done is I'm the guy who translated Nimza um, its German origin I'm the guy who showed you know who stumbled upon that it was the Bell basically my contribution is no one had taken all this stuff right. you know Crenshaw and Busby and Pymans and Vermont, none of these guys had gotten together really um to look at a big picture and see where it all fit together that's my that's what i happened to contribute to this was i saw the german thread and then i realized the bell is the needle 
Yes. The bell is the needle that draws that 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 led and drew that German thread from the 1850s Sonora Aero Club to the Nazis. You you found the missing link. And and for that, it it rewrites. It forces you to reevaluate maybe not the objective, but it but the state. And that's critical. And that is why we've gone way over time. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, that being said, I don't know what, what more you can just say than wow to that. Thank um, Mr. Bosley, you, you have to tell people where to find this book. And, and the book about your dad. I mean, that, that book is fascinating, too. And all the other goddamn books you've written are fascinating. <laughs> Well, um, you can, for those who, you know, I'm, I, I have my books in uh, print on demand. If you go to lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, and you type in my name um, or any of the titles of the books, if you have them on hand, you'll find them there. Um, they, they do really, the, 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 they do a good job on these books physically. It's a quality book. Um, and, uh, also my books, um, are available on Amazon Kindle. Um, I'm going to be shifting over to the print on demand primarily, um, for a while. So, but, but all the, what we've talked about tonight, you can find either on Kindle or in print on demand at lulu.com. And I have a blog, which when I'm working on a book, I don't make a lot of posts, but when I'm done with a book and I kind of put posts on there it's called empire of the wheel dot blogspot dot com if you go to my um my amazon kindle authors publishers page um you'll see the bio on the left and it'll give you the blog um the blog url to get there and stuff too so and and if you go to the blog you can get to the books right um it, it, you want to get to the books faster, I would say go to lulu.com okay. or, or go to Amazon because the uh, – yeah, I, uh, the, 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 the blogs, sometimes the links get buried in stuff. <laughs> it so happens. If you, go to the blog, if you go to the blog, just scroll down on the right-hand side there and you'll you know find it. But, and, and you can always go to Amazon or Lulu and just search for Walter Bosley. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say, Walter. That. Well, I appreciate you giving me this much time and, and access to your your audience. And, um, you, you know, I uh, I appreciate your interest in this stuff. I'll and, you know, I'll, I'll keep on going. <laughs> you got to keep on going. And and you know what? I think I'm one of probably a thousand other people that told you. But I think that you need to lead tours through Columbia and Sonora and that area and i think you need to lead tours and to show people because you know to our dear listeners you can actually go there you can see where these things happen you can see where these guys are buried you can see where these guys lived you can see where they launched the arrows from yeah and mr bosley would be the best tour guide ever for that because god damn it he knows where it all is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, we, it sounds like something we should both do. So yes. well, maybe there will be an announcement on that soon because I would love to do that. <laughs> anyway, so it's been another thrilling episode of the Paranoia Podcast. Again, I am Olaf Phillips, the publisher, owner, 
uh, writer I write uh, for the magazine. Uh, we are coming up with a new uh, issue right now. We're collecting our final articles. We missed the spring, but we are putting out for the summer, and we will do the fall. As you guys remember, we are an erratic publication that tries to publish four times a year, but usually publishes at least three. Um, it's coming. Uh, ParanoiaMagazine.com, Paranoia Magazine on Facebook, Paranoia Mag on Twitter, Paranoia Mag on Paranoia Mags on Instagram. We're all around. Uh, send us an email. You know, we love to hear from you. Uh, you know, we're we're not like those other people. We love to hear from you. We talk to you directly. We don't have a problem with it. You know, we we love our audience. We love our readers. So that being said. Oh man, God damn! You just blow my mind, Walter. Every time I talk to you, I, 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 I appreciate the uh, the encouragement. Yeah, it's every time. All right. So is as I always say at the end of every damn podcast: be excellent to each other. And uh, Ron's not here, so Ron doesn't get to say his uh, his whatever it is that he says. But uh, good night, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll be uh, try to get on somebody really awesome next week or the week after. Uh, we got another our next episode is going to be super cool too. Uh, it's men who stare at goats kind of stuff. Uh, it's not John Ronson, but it's somebody who did something similar uh, with another military unit. Uh, you'll want to listen to that. It'll blow your mind too. Probably not as much as this, but it will blow your mind. It's a hell of a story. And so that's it. So uh, be excellent to each other and good night. Thank you for listening to Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Sponsored by Paranoia Magazine. Read it now. Paranoiamagazine.com Intro theme, The Guide, was composed by Scott Moon. ScottMoon.net Outro theme, Fighting Trousers is by Professor Elemental. ProfessorElemental.com Voiceover written and performed by Mr. Lobo, host of Cinema Insomnia. Watch new episodes on OSI 74. Visit us at OSI74.com We are resuming control. For now. <laughs>